because when Jerry comes up, takes over, he'll introduce somebody who's thought a lot about HPV infection. So Jerry, uh, tag team, co-chair, welcome back to New York. Passing the baton. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's uh, great to see uh, so many people here. Uh, uh, it's wonderful that this course is so close to CROI um, because there were exciting things that were presented at CROI in a very, sort of very wide um, array of different areas, not specifically just antiretroviral therapy. And you hear about that. Um, I wanted to say, as I always do, that um, of course you've heard I'm from New York. I still come to New York all the time, not just for this course. My kids are here. My grandchildren are here. And um, I started out in Brooklyn, Paul, uh, and uh, wound up in the Bronx, and that was very difficult. Um, uh, as HIV appeared and was here for the early days of the HIV epidemic and um, uh, then moved on to uh, what is still really, I consider, uh, the tri-state area and very much in the realm and in, um, uh, uh, in the spell of New York City. Um, so I, I see you all as really the front line and the, I think, unspoken heroes and heroines of the epidemic, and that is you are the ones who are most responsible for the care uh, of HIV in the city. And just looking at the list of um, attendees, I know that you're all working all over the city and all of the boroughs, um, uh, working hard and caring for HIV patients and uh, now moving towards prevention of HIV and others. And so I just wanted to say that um, we honor you as being really critically important in this epidemic. Um, really, the, arguably the worst epidemic in human history. And um, so thank you for your work. Um, so with that as um, my uh, introduction, I want to uh, introduce the next speaker, um, who is um, Tim Wilkin from um, Whale Cornell, where he's an associate professor. And he will give us an update of uh, CROI and what has been selected as some of the most um, interesting, important uh, new presentations there. Thank you, Jerry. Um, the organizers wanted me to ask, um, I was fortunate to give a webinar yesterday on uh, a much longer presentation on CROI. Were any of you able to attend it? If you could just raise your hand. So it looks like just a few. So, um, great. So we're going to talk about updates from CROI. So it's a uh, potpourri of topics. Um, actually, none of them involve HPV, which is a nice break for me. Um, here are my financial disclosures. And uh, just to remind you that there's a lot of resources available uh, on the web about CROI if you want to look up any of the posters or webcasts in more detail. Um, all of that is publicly accessible and exquisitely well organized by IESUSA. Um, here are the learning objectives. So we'll talk uh, about prevention of HIV, some investigational drugs that are being developed both for treatment and prevention, uh, some optimal management of ART, and a bit about complications, comorbidities, and uh, maternal child health. 
Okay, we're gonna start with antiretroviral therapy. Um, you're gonna hear more about the, this drug later, but Bictegravir is now commercially available. Uh, really the big study about this at Croy was a switch study. It enrolled people virologically suppressed on dolutegravir or bacavir 3TC and randomized them to either continue on that same regimen or switch to the once daily Bictegravir uh, emtricitabine TAF regimen. And what they found was that both groups did extraordinarily well, highlighting the uh, tremendous efficacy that we have available to us today. Uh, so about 95% were suppressed a year, uh, year later, uh, but really the ones that were non-suppressed had mostly left the trial or had missing data. So nearly everyone uh, did, did very well. Uh, and it met the definition of non-inferiority. There were slight differences in renal function and triglycerides that favor the um, Bictegravir, but my take home from this is that both of these treatments are, are very good options for people who are biologically suppressed. Um, there really wasn't a whole lot of uh, new antiretroviral therapy. Dr. Gandhi, he'll talk to you about some of the other uh, compounds that were presented uh, later today. But I wanted to highlight something very exciting called a tri-specific monoclonal antibody. So this is very early in development. Um, you've heard a lot about broadly neutralizing antibodies, antibodies that can neutralize broad arrays of HIV infection or HIV strains and are being considered for prevention and treatment. Um, this is an engineered antibody um, that uh, is different from other antibodies in that it is engineered to have um, three separate, uh, it binds three separate areas on HIV strains. And um, it was tested and rearranged to really develop or maximize the breadth of um, HIV neutralization as well as the potency. Um, so it was studied for HIV prevention in a macaque model and was completely protective and seemed to perform better than some other broadly neutralizing antibodies. So this is entering human studies. Uh, the ACTG has a study planned, for example, for treatment. So this will be exciting to keep your eye on. Um, as far as antiretroviral strategies, um, this study is called Reality. It was conducted in international resource-constrained settings. Uh, it enrolled people at high risk for complications starting HIV treatments with CD4s less than 100. The study had uh, actually several objectives, but the one that they focused on at Croy was whether um, adding raltegravir or really starting with an integrase inhibitor there based therapy, would that increase the risk of immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome? Um, so that can be, uh, certainly can be morbid, but uh, in some cases can be fatal. Uh, so the study design, everybody received standard NNRTI-based therapy and uh, were randomized to either raltegravir or not. And what they found was that uh, raltegravir did drive down the viral load. Uh, very quickly, uh, but overall there was no difference in mortality or outcomes between the two groups. Um, and I think importantly what they found was that there was no difference in iris between people that received raltegravir and those who did not. Um, so defining iris is a bit tricky, but um, this is the best evidence we have to say that uh, the quick viral load decline with integrase inhibitors does not really predispose to immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome. They did reduce iris by having a broad package of preventive uh, medications, so preventing TB, cryptococcal meningitis, um, uh, some parasitic diseases. Um, and there, some of the references are there if you want to read more about it. 
Um, so, uh, Dr. Thompson this afternoon will talk to you about uh, the cascade, HIV cascade and one of the strategies to improve um, access to care or to uh, engage people in treatment is to initiate antiretroviral therapy very soon after diagnoses. Um, so, uh, people from the San Francisco Department of Health had several presentations at CROI. This is one of them. Uh, this one really highlighted their experience over the last few years of rapid ART initiation for new diagnoses. Um, so, what they did was they had a comprehensive educational uh, program to, to work with HIV testers and HIV providers to really get everybody working towards the same goal, which is to both diagnose people with HIV, but to uh, really get them into care in a very short time period, and once they got to care, to immediately start antiretroviral therapy unless there was some major contraindication to do so. Um, so what they found was that over the years they were actually able to um, decrease the time from diagnosis to care so that they were able to achieve their goal of, of, uh, of linkage to care within five days. Um, the time, the major thing was the time from diagnosis to a viral load less than 200. They were actually able to decrease that by two months by 54%, and that was both with the rapid ART initiation, but also with the use of integrase inhibitors uh, to drive down the viral load faster. Um, so it shows that it really can work, and other studies have shown that the number of new infections in San Francisco and other places as these um, really broader approaches are employed are really driving down the epidemic. And same thing here in New York. Um, so this is a study of uh, actually in Lesotho, or the small country that's, you know, the little circle within South Africa. Um, they did a, an amazing um, home testing effort to go out and test uh, 11,000 people in their homes and diagnose 400 um, people, again, in their home. And what they randomized people to was to either start ART at home or to um, have the standard of care, which is linkage uh, to a clinic, and then the person would come and then receive antiretroviral therapy. And what they found was that they were able to improve linkage to care by starting ART immediately, and they were able to improve the viral suppression rates a year later. So I'm not sure that we will do this in New York, but it really, um, I think, does assuage some fears about rapid initiation of ART and long-term virologic outcomes. A very interesting study looked at injectable naltrexone. Uh, so the, this study, the overarching goal was really to improve the transition of uh, people with HIV who are incarcerated uh, to the um, linkage to care as a, and viral suppression after they're released from um, prison. So this study enrolled people while they were in prison who were uh, incarcerated and had either alcohol or um, op opioid use disorder. Uh, two separate studies. Uh, they were randomized to receive injectable naltrexone to help prevent relapse of these conditions and then looked at the effect on virologic outcomes. And so the study was a bit small in some of the t statistics I wanted to ask a few more questions about, but they did find that the viral suppression rate seemed to be improved for those that received naltrexone. Um, and so uh, presumably by helping to prevent relapse, which helped to engage people in care. Um, so one of the big emerging strategies for HIV treatment instead of three drug therapy is really moving to two drug therapy. Uh, so this database looked at people that had switched 
two from uh, people who are virally, or people who switched to a two-drug regimen, and divided them really into two groups. Those who had M184V, the mutation that confers resistance to 3TC and emtricitabine, and those that did not. And interesting, interestingly, what they found was that despite having M184V mutation, people switched to a regimen of 3TC and either ritonavir busoprotease inhibitor or an integrase inhibitor seemed to do quite well. There really wasn't a significant difference in the risk of biologic failure. Um, I personally don't see the rationale for actually using two-drug therapy in someone who has M184V, but I think this does highlight that um, if someone has that mutation, you can use a single-tablet regimen of uh, tenofovir alafenamide, uh, emtricitabine, and an integrase inhibitor or ritonavir booster protease inhibitor with, with no concern. You would not need to add an additional drug. All right, um, just one slide on HIV cure uh, that I thought was very interesting. This study was done in monkeys, so it, uh, the study, monkeys were infected with the SHIV virus and were treated with antiretroviral therapy, I believe, in about three or four days after infection, and were suppressed for two years, so presumably had a very small reservoir. And then these monkeys were then assigned to four different strategies. One was just to um, stop uh, the medications. One was to receive t uh, TLR7 agonist. Uh, the second was to receive broadly neutralizing antibodies. And the third was to receive the combination. So to remind you, the TLR7 ag agonist is uh, something designed to um, activate HIV. So if you think of the kick and kill strategy, that's the kick part. And uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies can target infected cells, so it would kill, ideally kill the infected cells or lead to their death. Um, so what they found was that the combination, uh, monkeys that received that combination were far less likely to re uh, have recurrence of a viremia, were able to stay aviremic. Uh, you can see in the blue line at the bottom. What was interesting is that they then uh, took samples from the monkeys that had the, who were not viremic, who did not have relapse of viremia, and then tried to infect other monkeys um, and really could not, um, highlighting that perhaps a, a major change in their viral reservoir occurred. So um, this is a pretty exciting, um, these are pretty exciting results. There's a lot of caveats. First, it was monkeys. Second, they were treated extremely early, and HIV infection was really isn't the case for many of our patients. But certainly, this will be um, pursued as uh, in future studies for HIV cure. All right, we're going to talk next about pre-exposure prophylaxis. You're going to hear more about um, the broader implementation of PrEP later on. We're really going to focus on some new data and investigational PrEP strategies. Uh, so there was an interesting study that looked at the implementation of PrEP in New South Wales, Australia. So really, uh, this area did not have access to PrEP, and really the, the first widespread access came through this study. So they um, planned to recruit 3,700 uh, MSM with high risk of HIV infection. Uh, the uptake exceeded their expectations, and they enrolled double that and are uh, trying to increase the, the study size. Uh, what they found among people that received PrEP, there, was, uh, there were only two seroconversions, and uh, so a really reduced rate of infection over what would have been expected historically. And in fact, both of those seroconversions were people who were off PrEP at the time that they seroconverted. 
what made the study very interesting is that they looked just overall in, that, in this area of Australia to look at the impact of this uh, access to PrEP on um, HIV transmissions as a whole, and they found a 32% reduction in HIV incidence, a very exciting result. So we're, we're seeing declines in HIV infections in many places in the country that have broad access to treatment as prevention and broad access to PrEP, and it's best to think of all of these as sort of um, synergizing um, strategies to help uh, curb the epidemic. So um, there are studies ongoing for um, injectable cabotegravir. Uh, we have studies enrolling high-risk MSM, just a, a minor advertisement here in New York at the, uh, in the Bronx, at Columbia, New York Blood Center, at uh, Rutgers in New Jersey, uh, HPTN 083. Um, so globally, uh, most men that are infected with HIV actually acquire through heterosexual sex. And uh, to date, we really didn't have a monkey model for penile infection of HIV, so um, investigators from the CDC developed a model and validated it uh, with, um, by, were able to prevent penile infection with um, SHIV virus using TDF-FTC. Uh, then they went on to investigate whether cabotegravir would prevent penile infection and found very high efficacy, suggesting that it should work to prevent um, uh, uh, transmission from women to men during or vaginal sex or anal sex. Uh, in addition, other investigators looked at TAF-FTC, so there's um, a, a large study called the DISCOVER study run by Gilead, which is fully enrolled. Uh, we'll look at whether TAF-FTC is um, also uh, effective for um, HIV um, pre-exposure prophylaxis. This study uh, looked at the efficacy of this, and again, in a monkey model against vaginal SHIV infection and found that it was highly significant, um, so suggesting that it, it, it could be effective um, for that prevention. Um, Dr. Gandhi will talk to you more about MK8591. It's a very exciting um, uh, drug. It's a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. And um, it's highly potent. So just small doses of the medication lead to um, effective um, levels. So this study, are, and it's being developed both for treatment and prevention. So this study was looking at this compound, again, in a, a monkey model, this, in this case for interrectal infection, and they found that it was completely effective, and effective at very low doses. So this is not a typo, but the dose, equivalent human doses to what they used in monkeys would have been 250 micrograms weekly or 10 micrograms daily. So it's got an extremely long half-life, so this will be potentially could be dosed weekly or potentially dosed orally monthly for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it's also being considered for implants and other tech long-acting technologies. So a uh, very exciting um, compound. All right, so tuberculosis. So there were a number of presentations uh, highlighting some new advances in tuberculosis. And I just wanted to say the um, New York City Department of Health put out a bulletin last week 
about increases in the number of tuberculosis infections in the city, so a 10% increase over the years, or over the last year, whereas we had seen a steady decline from the peak in the early 90s. And there were a few more cases of uh, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. So um, it gets to be a little bit of a grind as an HIV provider to run all those negative quantifurons or tuberculin skin tests, but uh, stay vigilant as our patients with HIV infection are both at risk for uh, uh, infection due to a lot of their socioeconomic and housing statuses, but also um, at risk for reactivation. So um, please uh, stay vigilant about that. Um, so the first audience response question. So which statement is true regarding antiretroviral therapy interactions with rifampin-based tuberculosis treatment? Um, so. Thank you. So dilutegravir concentrations are not appreciably changed by rifampin co-administration. Rifampin lowers TAF concentrations intracellularly uh, to levels precluding co-administration, so you can't dose those together. Twice daily dilutegravir plus NRTIs results in reasonable virologic outcomes in patients receiving rifampin. Or twice daily dosing of victegravir overcomes the PK interactions with rifampin, allowing co-administration. A lot to... Uh, Let's sink in, so I'll give you a few seconds. I do find waiting for this to be difficult. <laughs> I like people to go quickly. Um, we're all from New York. All right, uh, so... Um, yeah, so half of you got the, the correct answer. We'll learn about twice daily dolutegravir uh, that really seemed to have good virologic outcomes when given with rifampin. Um, and um, we'll learn that dolutegravir is lowered, but you give it twice daily and it seems to work. Rifampin does lower the active form of TAF intracellularly, but it's still way above what you get with TDF, so it doesn't, it's unlikely to be a problem. And uh, Bictegravir, uh, the levels were low enough that um, even with twice daily Bictegravir that it did not seem a good idea to give with rifampin. Okay, so before we talk about some of that, I wanted to talk about what I think are some of the most exciting results from um, CROI, which is ACTGA 5279. So this was looking at a new treatment for latent tuberculosis in HIV-infected people. Uh, it's one month of daily INH and rifapentine. So they enrolled 3,000 HIV-infected adults uh, from high TB incidents or uh, who also had either IGRA-positive or tuberculosis skin test positive. Half were women, good CD4 count. 50% were on ART and most of those were suppressed. So they were randomized to daily isoniazid for nine months. Uh, uh, with the, the standard of care in this case, or daily INH and daily rifapentine for one month, and they chose this regimen based on some animal model data. And so people uh, received the treatment and then they were followed for um, tuberculosis over the coming years. And what they found were, was that the number of tuberculosis cases in the two groups was nearly identical. So the daily INH and rifapentine was found to be not inferior to daily isoniazid. Other studies, other analyses showed that uh, there was sort of a safety trade-off, but um, the safety profile 
daily INH and rifapentine was excellent and, more, and people were more likely to complete that treatment, obviously because it was much shorter. Uh, so this is a pretty exciting uh, advance. What we don't know right now is really how to dose uh, rifapentine with dolutegravir. Um, so you would need to be careful about implementing this in clinical practice uh, in people that are on dolutegravir. Um, so some of the PK interactions that we alluded to in the ARS question. So there is an interaction between rifampin and tenofovir alafenamide. So to orient you, on the left graph is the intracellular concentrations of tenofovir disphosphate, the, the active um, form of tenofovir. Um, and you can see in the red line, there's a decrease in this concentration with TAF, uh, about a 36% decrease. But if you compare that level to people that are just receiving uh, TDF without rifampin, you see that there's still a much higher concentration. So it's really thought that this interaction would not be clinically significant. We don't have actual um, virologic outcome data in people receiving both, but it's predicted to work well. Um, so this is the study that showed the interaction of bictegravir and rifampin. So in the green top bar is the normal, really lovely, uh, slow decay of um, PK uh, concentrations for bictegravir over 24 hours. And you can see a marked difference in people receiving rifampin. So they expected this and, and, and studied this with twice daily dosing. Um, you can see the median trough concentration is still well above the, um, the, uh, the target or the threshold level that you would need to achieve. But when you look at a broader array of people receiving this, you would actually expect uh, some of them to fall below that level. And so based on this, the uh, Gilead concluded that the co-administration should not, not be pursued. Uh, there was a study that looked at outcomes of uh, virologic outcomes, HIV virologic outcomes of pe for people receiving um, tuberculosis therapy, rifampin-based tuberculosis therapy. Um, so they enrolled people on tuberculosis therapy who needed to start antiretroviral therapy and then assigned them to either starting dolutegravir twice daily with two nukes or in a, the standard efavirenz-based regimen. Uh, so this study was not designed to compare between the two groups, but to give a general sense of the efficacy with dolutegravir. And what they found uh, is that both groups did, did fairly well. The efavirenz performed excellently in this case. 88% uh, virologic suppression at week 24, 80% uh, with dolutegravir twice daily. Um, the PK concentration, trough concentrations were reasonable with dolutegravir. Uh, so it's really thought that this would be a viable option uh, for treating HIV in the context of rifampin-based tuberculosis therapy. And this is important internationally because because um, across the globe, people are moving from NNRTI-based therapy to integrase, in this case, dolutegravir-based uh, antiretroviral therapy. Okay, so there were several presentations on acute hepatitis C virus. Uh, so I think this is important because um, HIV-infected men who have sex with men are really the uh, a big risk group for acquiring acute hepatitis C. Uh, so which of these is true about MSM living with HIV, uh, about an MSM living with HIV who you just diagnosed with acute HCV infection? Um, that, is it true that spontaneous clearance will happen most of the time, so treatment should not be considered or not considered immediately? 
Uh, if the viral load does not decline by two logs over four weeks, then spontaneous resolution is unlikely. Or the viral relapse from failure of HCV treatment occurs commonly in this population. And, or spontaneous clearance is more likely if the patient is male. What happened? I thought there was music. There's not music. <laughs> My boss would demand Broadway sh show tunes. All right, we can move on. Um, yes, I, it shows that we have a lot of experience with acute hepatitis C here in the audience. Um, we'll learn uh, some more details, but really, uh, the, if the viral load does not decline by two logs, you can be guaranteed that the person is not going to clear their hepatitis C virus. Um, so there was a really interesting study that looked at the concept of treating hepatitis C as prevention. Um, just like we do for HIV. So this was in the Swiss HIV cohort study. So in the first phase, they made a systematic effort to diagnose people both for chronic hepatitis C, but also acute hepatitis C. Uh, in the second phase, they treated everyone with uh, DAAs and achieved the expected incredible cure rate of 99.5%. And then they looked again after this to see what impact that they had on the epidemic. So not surprisingly with chronic infection, because they treated everybody, their hepatitis C uh, prevalence um, uh, declined dramatically by 93%. What is interesting is that the incident or acute infection also declined by 50%, suggesting that this broad uh, application of treatment to this population actually helped prevent some of the um, hepatitis C transmissions. Um, other data, there was a study that looked at um, eight weeks of grisoprevir, elvisvir for treatment of acute hepatitis C, and everyone did great, so 99% were cured. Of note, three were reinfected with a different viral strain, um, and, but only one relapse occurred, and this is typical of probably several uh, DAA regimens. Uh, there was a large European cohort which provided some excellent data on the natural history of acute hepatitis C. And so something I think is very important to consider is that spontaneous clearance in this cohort was only 12%. So only 12% of people that are diagnosed with acute hepatitis C would actually go on to clear the infection. Um, and uh, clearing the infection was uh, strongly predicted by a two-log two decline in hepatitis C RNA over four weeks. Um, but even with treatment of hepatitis C, there was still a 17% reinfection rate, and that's been seen in a few studies. Um, so I think that these data overall do support universal treatment of acute hepatitis C to hopefully impact the epidemic. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about metabolic complications. So, um, so for many people, uh, we when we do the DEXA scans, we can't diagnose people with osteoporosis. I think a lot of people have switched from TDF to TAF-based regimens. This study was trying to understand, is that switch alone enough to treat osteoporosis, or do you also need to add bisphosphonates? So th the data actually were mixed. Uh, so if you look at the HIP, um, there really was, let me make sure I get this right, the, um, the, there was an added 
benefit to, um, sorry, there was not an added benefit to, um, to adding bisphosphonates on top of the switch from TAF, but you did see a benefit in the spine. So the um, authors concluded that you could consider a sequential strategy where you switch from TDF to TAF in people with osteoporosis and then rescreen. and if they're still having problems a year or two later, then you can consider the bisphosphonates at that point. Uh, a, a large study from the VA database that looked at the use of statins and the risk of cancer. And so they did a, you know, an excellent analysis of matched pairs and really controlled for a whole variety of factors. And what they found was really interesting that uh, people who received statins had a 40% reduced risk of cancer uh, with a really strong, strong reduction in people with HIV of 50%. Um, and they didn't have many AIDS-defining cancers. Uh, but among the non-AIDS-defining cancers, they saw, again, a 50% reduction in people um, on statins uh, who are HIV positive. And you can look at some of the other specific cancers, including virus-related cancers, where there seemed to be a benefit to being on statins. And overall, the death rate was 45% lower with statin use. So uh, there's the ongoing reprieve study that's uh, being enrolled at many sites in New York um, that will hopefully uh, as a secondary analysis, be able to address some of this in a randomized trial. Uh, maternal and child health, just to finish up. Um, oh, no, it's turning red. It's all right. Uh, so there was an interesting drug interaction uh, between, found between vaginal ring hormonal contraceptions and efavirenz, or atazanavir, and atazanavir ritonavir. So what they found was that efavirenz dramatically lowered uh, etonogestrol levels and ethanyl estradiol levels in women that were receiving the Nuva ring, sorry the trade name, but so you uh, are clear. Um, so the conclusion was that this contraception would not, would likely not be effective or have less efficacy in women co uh, receiving efavirenz. Adesanova rutanavir also had some interactions, but it was not predicted to affect efficacy. Um, an important study looked at treating uh, latent tuberculosis with isoniazid during pregnancy. So this study took women who were in need of latent tuberculosis, women living with HIV who are pregnant, and randomized them either to start during pregnancy or postpartum. And what they found was that TB in either group was extremely low. Uh, there was no real difference in maternal safety, but they did find that pregnancy outcomes were much were worse in women receiving isoniazid daily isoniazid during pregnancy. Uh, so that was both fetal demise, low birth weight, et cetera. So that really should uh, interject a note of caution of treating latent tuberculosis uh, during pregnancy in HIV in women living with HIV. All right, so we covered some prevention, cure, complications, a little bit on co-infections, a lot on tuberculosis. Um, and maternal to child health. So remember all the resources that are on the web uh, should you want to learn more about any of these topics from Croy. Okay. Thank you. Great talk. Have a seat. Um, so this really is a very sophisticated audience. So I think um, we should be asking you questions next time we do this. Um, so there are a couple of interesting questions. Um, the first has to do with um, the practical use of data supporting two drug regimens in patients with M184B. Are there patients who you would be comfortable or not comfortable with actually making that kind of a regimen choice? 
So um, if they had M184B as a sole mutation and you were looking for a two-drug regimen, I personally would look towards dolutegravir ropivirine if that was appropriate for the patient. Um, there's excellent data. Remember, there were the two large SWORD studies that, um, huge studies that showed that that's a very effective two-drug regimen. Of note, they did not enroll people with viral resistance, but the M184B would not impact the efficacy of either of the two drugs. So that would be my go-to. I would not recommend a, a, a lamivudine dolutegravir or a lamivudine protease inhibitor in patients with M184B, despite the data that I presented. Okay. Another practical question. This has to do with the rapid initiation study at UCSF. Um, were there any patients in whom this would not be a good strategy? That is, it looked so successful across the board, but we have a very heterogeneous patient yeah. population. Who would you be comfortable with doing this and not being comfortable doing well, it? Well, um, I, I definitely think that, you know, if there was an acute, there's specific acute opportunistic infections, that you might uh, have pause to immediately start antiretroviral cryptococcal meningitis, certain things. But um, beyond that, um, it would really have to be the judgment of some of the social factors. If people mm -hmm. say specifically, I don't want to take medications, then you're very hard pressed to just shove the pill bottle in their hands. Um, so I, I think you do still have to use your judgment. I think that this is really a public health approach of what the goal should be and uh, that we should all be working towards. But you know, you still have your individual responsibility as healthcare providers to do what you feel is best for the individual patient. So for some patients, certainly in New York, um, uh, people who inject drugs, uh, mental illness is uh, often a comorbidity yes. that would probably want to be attended to yeah. first before you institute antiretroviral therapy. Yeah, and absolutely. And um, again, it's the strategy of starting sooner, but ideally that's coupled with adherence support and other strategies to really maximize um, the, the person's chance of virologic suppression. Right. So we heard a lot about rifapentine. It mm -hmm. looks terrific. When is this going to be available? Um, I mean, I think that the major limitation right now for people with HIV that who are for, you know, generally all of them are on um, antiretroviral therapy and right. on an integrase inhibitor-based therapy. So I think the major delay will be just really um, trying to uh, waiting until there's, um, sorry, there's uh, appropriate PK studies to know how to dose the integrase inhibitors with this drug. Right. Okay, and also I think the issue that you mentioned about the one daily regimen and whether there are immunologic or there are pharmacokinetic issues with rifapentine when given on a daily basis yes. in this population. There are a lot of drug interactions that we yeah. don't know about. There, there was an interaction study of weekly isoniazid rifapentine right. at higher doses with dolutegravir, and there was some serious toxicity yeah. that was stopped after three or four patients. So, I mean, I think that there is uh, still work that needs to be done on, on um, those interactions before we can really use it. Do you believe that the potential for increased risk of iris in AIDS patients with dolutegravir or integrase inhibitors um, based on uh, is put to rest by the reality trial, in part because all the patients receive prophylaxis for all the commonly uh, potential opportunistic infections in resource-limited settings, but maybe not here. 
Well, um, I didn't go into a lot of the details of that study and the other, it was a factorial design, so there were multiple randomizations within the study. Uh, so one group got an extended prophylaxis, whereas uh, another group got the, just a standard prophylaxis for low CD4 cells. Um, so despite those differences, the integrase inhibitor did not impact the risk of iris or overall mortality. Um, so what this means is that I, I think it, I think the issue of iris and early mortality is still a big issue that needs to be worked on, but I don't think that uh, it's going to be exacerbated by switching to integrase inhibitor-based therapies. So I do think it's uh, put to rest. There's certainly not going to be another study, thousands of patients to evaluate 3, this. 3,000 patients, yeah. yes. So the level of the CD4 count might be important because that's going to be what is most likely to predict the likelihood of a severe iris reaction. Yes. So it's really very, very low. Um, well, you're much more likely to have serious iris, of yes. course. So, so in this study, I'm trying to remember, the, the patients largely had CD4 counts above 400, or they, oh, no, were, they no, were, were all the way across? They were all enrolled less than 100. So yeah, the median CD4 count, right. I believe, was in the mid-30s. Was there a sub-study analysis that pre they presented about people with severe lowered CD4 count, like less than 50? Um, not that I recall. No. Uh, but again, most of the people were less than 50 right. CD4 cells. So we need a few more questions of anyone. I think there are, are there microphones? I guess not, but you can shout them out. Um, there is a microphone down here, if anyone's courageous enough to, do you have a question? No? Okay, so, so with acute hep C, so do you wait for weeks to see if there's a too long drop, or do you start yeah. immediately? So I, I think you might want to ask your local hepatologist exactly what they would recommend. Um, I mean, to me, the fact that only 11% um, uh, spontaneous or 12% spontaneously cleared, I would think about just starting hepatitis C therapy. I mean, the the major, the only reason why there's a debate is just really the cost of the drugs, which is not at all an insignificant issue. Um, so there are modeling studies that really suggest that treating that, because remember, somebody who has acute HCV has recently engaged in really high-risk behavior that led to the infection, and presumably they will continue uh, or could continue that behavior. So um, you know, if you can prevent a transmission, then that would be highly you know, cost-effective, I would think. Um, so I think it would, so I think it, you could have either option would be reasonable to observe the viral load over time uh, or to perhaps just treat um, directly. There's a PrEP study that will come up again, I think, when um, Dr. Obwagu speaks about PrEP in more detail, but I know it comes up frequently, so we might have different opinions. Let me ask it. Treatment as prevention is effective for pre-exposure prophylaxis, so in a discordant couple, if the HIV-positive patient is undetectable, should the partner receive PrEP, or would it be sufficient not to receive PrEP? Um, so a great question. It comes up all the time, all the time. in clinical practice. Right. So I would say the first thing um, is to make sure that the partner who is HIV uninfected, besides being tested and all that, uh, to really have a detailed sexual history because often there's sexual activity outside the relationship and other reasons to have PrEP. So that's the first thing. 
Um, the second, as a public health approach, I don't think that that's really the group that we should be targeting for our prevention efforts because the risk, um, I do believe the data about undetectable being non-transmissible with a little asterisk for case reports <laughs> that, that um, where uh, transmission has still occurred. Um, so as an individual practitioner, um, you know, you could consider it for individual patients if they still feel strongly about having, uh, receiving PrEP. Um, but I don't really think that that's how we're going to impact the epidemic from a public health perspective. It's really reaching communities of color, people that don't have access to PrEP. Great. Um, a question about the SWITCH study with uh, um, uh, uh, TAF. Um, it has to do with not just the um, metabolic and X-ray abnormalities, but were there safety, were there actually fractures? Um, I don't recall whether there were fractures, but um, in general with studies, even if you have hundreds of patients, the number of fractures are extremely low, extremely low. Uh, that you couldn't really draw a conclusion. That really comes from large cohort studies or pooled meta-analysis. Um, so that's a way of just saying I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe as the population ages, yes. we'll know more. Yes. Um, I had a question about the Lesotho study, which is mm. uh, also a, a rapid um, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 initiation of antiretroviral therapy in a community-based versus a clinic-based. Uh, uh, and this is, this is a major issue in, um, everywhere, but particularly in resource-limited settings where healthcare systems issues really often inhibit the initiation of antiretroviral therapy. But among the people who did get linked to clinic, um, so, so they were started more quickly compared to those that were in the community, and that was definitely shown. So they were on antiretrovirals. Was there longer follow-up that indicated how, do you remember uh, if they reported that, how they did in the end? Did that affect actually adherence or uh, uh, um, uh, loss to follow-up or um, disengagement of care? Really the only, um, the only uh, endpoints that I recall are at a year later. A year later. So, you know, everyone was really to get into care, you know, right. soon, and then they gave them up to three months for the one endpoint. Um, so the virologic suppression rate meant of the people assigned to that therapy, how many of them had, were in care, had a documented viral load showing suppression, and it was clearly better with better. the home-based initiation of antiretroviral therapy. Right. Okay. Um, I think that's about it. That was Great. really fabulous. Thank you very much. Okay. So we have uh, chapter two of the questions about um, your practice and demography. And let's see if we can put them up. Okay, so um, what is your clinical academic training or background? And um, please only one, select one. Doctor, nurse, nurse practitioner, public health professional, physician assistant, pharmacist, health educator, or other. No music? <laughs> I can dance. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think has been the case in other courses, and I think this illustrates it very well, that you are a group of diverse group of healthcare professionals involved with HIV. Um, but the majority are actually individuals who are likely prescribing 
front line of caring for people with HIV. So again, my um, congratulations to all of you, particularly those who are in the front line. Um, second question, what is the setting of your current work? Clinical research, community-based clinic, corrections facility, fellow or other training, government, solo or group practice, hospital-based, managed care, or other. Okay. Well, look around. I'm sure many of you know each other, and uh, um, congratulations again. Um, so um, there's a special event that we wanted to add to this course that we haven't done before, and it's actually important because we are a community of people um, committed to and um, and, um, and um, with a passion for doing HIV work. And one of the things that happened in this past year is that we lost very important colleagues. Many of you will know about this, or if not, I think it's very important that we all recognize uh, their loss and also their contribution. So I'm going to ask everybody to please stand. Oh, the fellows. Okay. I'm sorry. You can, I got this wrong, but we'll do it in, in the order that we, I've started, okay? So maybe we can go to the memorial slide and skip a few slides. And we'll come back, okay. So um, during the past year, these wonderful colleagues, you would know them by name or reputation, all passed. And uh, Dr. Mark Weinberg, Dr. David Cooper, Dr. Fred Gordon and Dr. Beth, uh, Bonnie Mathieson. And um, we wanted to say something special about them, perhaps each one, and also in concert in terms of their contributions to people living with HIV and to the epidemic as a whole. Okay, do you want to start? Should I? Um, I'll start with uh, um, David Cooper, who was um, an incredible colleague. He was uh, active at the very first uh, outbreak of AIDS in Australia, worked in Sydney, uh, and uh, really set the standard, I think, for a national response, and it was largely, uh, at least largely his doing. Uh, but um, he was also a close colleague of Yublanga, uh, who we lost last year in yes. the, uh, uh, when the uh, plane was shot down over, over Ukraine. Uh, and the two of them uh, really focused a lot of the world's attention on the situation of AIDS in Asia. Uh, it's often somewhat neglected, but uh, David was a, a, a real hero of that part of the epidemic. So Mark Weinberg was um, Canadian, uh, a former president. Both of them, David and Mark Weinberg, of the International AIDS Society, 
um, who died tragically and suddenly by drowning while on vacation um, uh, and um, had made major contributions as a virologist to uh, the, um, uh, the discovery and the use of 3TC and working on other viral agents and directed the AIDS program and um, AIDS Research Institute at uh, McGill in, uh, in Montreal. So that was an unexpected great loss. Uh, Fred Gordon was um, head of infectious diseases at the Washington VA hospital and also a major figure in both tuberculosis and HIV and in part one of the responsible people for um, clinical trials of the START study and the SMART study, which have really set as large-scale clinical trials and very, very important clinical strategies in terms of the use of HIV, both domestically and globally. So uh, he um, died recently uh, of a long chronic illness and um, was a very courageous man. And Bethany was a, a researcher at the, at the NIH and was a really important mentor to a lot of people, especially to women uh, working in HIV. And just also add that Fred Gordon uh, did his ID training at UCSF. I got to know him then. Uh, so he again was, was involved in this, uh, as was uh, uh, Mark and David from the very earliest very days of the right. epidemic. Yep. Okay. So um, I'll go back to uh, um, to the beginning, this is, uh, so these are senior people in the initial generation of individuals who uh, were um, critically important in the early and continuing days of the HIV epidemic, and now we have a world of new. Uh, one, of, one of the great concerns in the epidemic has always been um, who is going to continue to do the work. And I think... Um, we all sort of feel this as we are seniors and uh, worrying about it. So it's always very comforting. It's wonderfully comforting to know that, that, that there are new trainees who are interested in carrying this forward and who will with the same love and passion and competence and compassion that I think this early, early generation of HIV doctors have. So um, I think we're going to ask all of those who are fellows and students to actually stand in the audience? Come on. No. Okay. And welcome to you. Um, okay. Uh, I have one additional question, and that is to ask you um, to place yourself on the following scale of HIV expertise. One more. Whoa, are we missing some? Is there anything in between? Oh, okay. Oh, all right, from one to five. Okay, got it. So this would be moderate to large experience with HIV. Okay. Now, as a corollary, we're going to ask how many HIV patients do you personally manage? <laughs> 